the infamous uh, board is up here tonight, so, and it's completely empty, so it's looking for names. So uh, this is kind of the sign-up sheet that we use for the families uh, downstairs. They come about, uh, if you don't know this, uh, they come here, I think they get here about quarter till six, and there's a prepared meal down there for them. It's just to kind of help families uh, be a little less chaotic on Wednesday so they don't have to go home and try to get supper and then get to church. So we provide the supper here for them. So there's a thing on here for serving and cleanup. Also, if you want to uh, help out in the nursery uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and pass that around. So if you're able uh, to do that, uh, great. If not, just make sure that this kind of keeps moving. I think sometimes it kind of gets stalled out. So appreciate that. You know, the downside of, of days like today are if you've been inside all day, you know, and then you get home, it's like the last thing you want to do is go back inside again. So I know this is always a, kind of that time of year where you want to be outdoors and church on Wednesday night and tough to make those, all those decisions. So good to have you here. And we've been looking at the, again, just uh, going through pretty slowly, it seems like. We've had kind of a, I think, what was it, two weeks ago we had uh, no church because of snow, and then last week we had the Feast of Purim. So it's just kind of one of these things, everything kind of just keeps getting uh, set back. So we've kind of been looking, uh, just in the last few months, we've really been looking at this, again, invitation of intimacy. Um, and, and again, there is, uh, we're going to talk about the, the cost of intimacy, because there is a cost. If we're, if we're going to pursue and, and develop and deepen intimacy with God, there is a cost to that, but the price for that uh, has been paid. And that's really kind of what the video was illustrating there through the death of Jesus Christ. You know, he, he has opened um, the way for us to enter into uh, that intimate relationship with the Father. So tonight I want to kind of look at the cost of intimacy. And um, just again, I know some of you maybe that have been here, you've heard this enough, but uh, maybe for some of you uh, who've not been here, or haven't been here in a while, again, intimacy, when we talk about that, that term intimacy with God, what we're talking about there um, is it really is kind of defined, it's developed, it's deepened uh, when the deepest parts of us are really kind of able to experience the deepest parts of the Godhead. When I use that term Godhead, I'm talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Intimacy with God, it occurs when your heart, and I'm not talking about your physical organ, I'm talking about your emotions. I'm talking about your passions, your desires. When those things kind of connect with uh, the heart of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, intimacy is the outflow of that. And so that's what I, I mean when I talk about that term intimacy. Uh, when we take our rightful place within the Godhead, and again, uh, if you were here early on, we kind of looked at the Trinity as, you know, three persons, one being, one substance, um, and we kind of uh, took and we put some people, three people, and they kind of formed a circle, and then we took an individual and we kind of put them in the midst of that circle uh, that, that represented the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that we were created to experience all that is experienced within that unified Godhead. So when, when you think about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in unity, within that unity, there flows perfect love, perfect peace, uh, perfect 
grace. I mean, all of the fullness of God exists perfectly within that fellowship, that unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We were created from that, um, from the dust of the earth, God formed us, breathed the uh, breath of life into us. We were created to be in the midst of, of that fellowship of what is being experienced within the Godhead. Um, and we kind of, you know, again, demonstrated how sin took us out of that, how Jesus left that um, unity of the Godhead. He went and he rescued mankind, redeemed us, brought us back into that fellowship. And so we are invited, we're brought back into that, that fellowship where we can experience what we were created to experience. Does that make sense? I know for some of you this is kind of a review. Um, and so again, when we take our rightful, God-ordained, God-created place within that fellowship of the, of the Godhead, when this spiritual sphere kind of becomes our dwelling place, and when we share and receive in the love that is being expressed within that fellowship, um, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it, it is there that we are able to not only receive the love of God, but we're also able to give back uh, love to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're able to love uh, others um, in that as well. So not only do we become receivers or recipients of all that is being expressed and experienced in that triune fellowship, but we also have the opportunity to be able to give um, that back. Uh, that's why we, again, uh, we have talked about that phrase, it takes God to love God, uh, it takes God to know God, and we cannot know God, we cannot experience the love of God apart from God. And so when we encounter the grace of God, again, and, and you know, God's grace, his mercy, his kindness, his goodness, his holiness, his righteousness, all of those things are what we would call attributes or characteristics of God. And so when we encounter uh, God's grace or really any of those attributes or characteristics of God, uh, when, when we receive that grace, we also have the opportunity then to extend that grace. Uh, when we receive the forgiveness of God, we're able to extend the forgiveness of God. Uh, and so when we want to experience more joy or we want to experience kindness, patience, gentleness, humility, compassion, uh, whatever godly expression is being or, or attribute is being expressed uh, and shared within this triune fellowship as we take our place, as we dwell in the midst of that triune fellowship, we will, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3.19, uh, that we may experience or we may partake uh, or be filled up to all the fullness of God. So that's the goal. That's our, our focus, our mission, our purpose, the plan uh, of God for every son, every daughter of God. This is how God makes us more and more into the image 
of his son. Because, I mean, as you, as you just kind of dwell in that triune fellowship, you're going to become more loving. As you receive the love of God, you're just going to become more loving. Uh, as you experience the kindness of God, you're just going to become more kind. As you experience the patience and the goodness, again, all those attributes, it's God's way of shaping, of molding, of transforming you more and more into the image of his son. So he's drawing us um, more deeply into intimate fellowship within the Godhead. And, and uh, that when we encounter, and, and what we encounter there, uh, we become more like. Now, one of the re- key reasons most Christians uh, do not um, experience uh, the kind of intimacy that, that, that God would desire that we experience is because oftentimes we really lack the hunger and the thirst it takes to pursue and to go after that. Um, Rhonda Huey, in her book, Desperate for His Presence, she kind of uh, addresses this very issue. And she says in her book there, she says, an initial hunger and thirst comes with the gift of salvation. So when you were born again, when, when you became a Christian, part of what you received in that is this initial hunger and thirst for more of what you've experienced. And she says, but after the spiritual honeymoon is over, we must intentionally cultivate that spiritual passion recognizing that we may have grown cold. And there, again, there's just that tendency in all of us. Uh, she's not, I don't think saying this is a condemnation or guilt or any of that, but she's just saying that, that we've all experienced those mountaintop experiences, those valleys with God. And so she just says, recognizing those times when we may have grown cold in our love toward him, our first prayer must be to ask him to increase our spiritual appetite. Desperate hunger is the currency of heaven. Hunger is what causes us to empty ourselves of compromise and create a holy dissatisfaction. It means we're not content with where we're at. We want more, we need more, we're dissatisfied in that. And she said that drives us to our knees and makes us or drives us to greater dependency on God. We cannot be hungry for God if we are being satisfied with other things because the church constantly nibbles on junk food from the world. She has lost her appetite for God. We don't even feel the pain of hunger for him. We are starving for the lack of his presence without even knowing it. That lack of desperate longing for God has brought us to our present condition. The stale quality of our religious lives is a direct result of our lack of holy desire. Jesus waits to be seriously wanted and invited. In response, we must trade our complacency for abandonment. He promises that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled, Matthew 5, 6. Let us ask the Lord to salt our hearts and cause a fresh hunger and thirst to overtake us. He will give 
us as much of himself as we ask for. Now, the reality is, and I'm just as guilty of this as any of you would be, is that we will go to great lengths to avoid any form of hunger, thirst, or discomfort because we, we talked about that in, in relationship to fasting. Again, we have attached such negative association with that, and yet it is the very pathway the Bible calls us to seek And uh, again, asking God, would you instill a hunger and a thirst in me for more of you? Listen again to David's heart cry in Psalm 63, 1. He said, oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 42.1 reflects, uh, again, a very similar uh, spiritual cry of desperation from David. He said, as the deer pants for water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, the living God. This needs to be our cry as well. God, would you create in my soul, in my spirit, an intense hunger and thirst for you that you and you alone would be able to satisfy? Jesus promises in John chapter 7 there in verse 37. He said, if anyone thirsts, again, and he's not talking about a physical thirst here. He's talking about a spiritual thirst. Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, interestingly, one of the things that um, I kind of discovered, and you'll discover this as you kind of pursue this if you haven't already, is one of the ways that God works in our lives is he creates this hunger and thirst within us. And as we turn to God, for God to begin to satisfy and to fulfill the longing, the hunger, the thirst for him, he kind of does that. He he will fulfill, he will satisfy that hunger and thirst that he's created in you by just bringing you into his presence. Now, we probably have all experienced that at one time or another. Now, what is interesting to me, and oftentimes what we fail to recognize, is then he takes that hunger and thirst, and maybe he kind of met it at this level. And what God will do is he will kind of then, as as he's met that hunger and thirst, he'll kind of just take it now to a deeper level. He'll kind of increase He'll intensify that very hunger and thirst he just satisfied, and and this doesn't happen immediately, but but at a certain point, as God has has satisfied, fulfilled, and met that hunger, that thirst for him, all of a sudden now, he just deepens it and kind of creates a greater longing, a, a sense of a deeper need for him. And then he will satisfy that. 
And then once we've been in that place of satisfaction and fulfillment with God, what he'll do to, to draw us even deeper is he'll take that hunger, that thirst, that longing for him, and then he'll kind of, he'll intensify that again with, with an even deeper need. Now, oftentimes, we kind of mistake that, 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 that somehow we're missing God. We're not missing God at all. We're experiencing God. But see, the point is, is if we stay at this place of satisfaction and fulfillment, what happens? Complacency. So what does God do to draw us nearer to him to keep us pursuing him is God's going to take that and he's just going to deepen that. That hunger and thirst is just going to grow for more of that. And so, again, that's one of the ways um, that, that uh, God works. And again, this, this is what we were created for. This is how God is developing and deepening his relationship with us. So hunger and thirst for more and more of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what it's going to do is it's eventually just going to lead you to greater uh, and deeper experiences um, with him. Now, I want to kind of just uh, turn our, our attention because, as I said earlier, there is a cost to this. The price has been paid, but there is a cost in this pursuit of intimacy um, for us. And again, it, it's crucial that we understand when it really kind of comes to this pursuit of intimacy with God um, that one of the common denominators among those who have pursued and given their all for God is they've had to pay a price, they've had to make sacrifices in order to continue in that pursuit. The same is going to be true for any of us who really are truly seeking a greater, deeper intimacy um, for that. So one of the costs um, that you're going to face in this uh, is the disapproval of others. As you kind of start going deeper with God, as you begin to experience more and more of the presence of God, that is going to be wonderful. But one of the costs that you're going to run into eventually is you are going to offend, you're going to upset, you're going to win the disapproval of others. Now, one of the instances, and there's many examples of this in the scriptures, uh, one of the best uh, examples that really kind of exemplifies this is found in Luke 7, beginning there in verse 36. It's a story all of you, uh, most of you would be familiar with. And there it says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral, and underline that, Woman from that city heard Jesus was eating there. She brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. And her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman was touching him. She is a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts, because Jesus has that ability to kind of discern what we're thinking. 
He said, Simon, Jesus said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave both of them, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my head, my feet, with rare perfume. I tell you her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. What this woman did to Jesus, this immoral woman, this sinner, as far as Simon was concerned, what she did in washing Jesus' feet with her tears, drying his feet with her hair, anointing uh, his feet with rare, costly perfume, again, was a very intimate act that she did openly And she does that to display, again, her affection, her love, her devotion, her adoration to Jesus. Now, what caused her, what moved her, what motivated her to do this um, is not known. But you just kind of get the sense that Jesus perfectly understands her motivation and her reason for doing this. And for that open display of affection, for uh, adoration, uh, intimacy, again, she is criticized uh, by Simon. And she is judged as someone who is not worthy, someone who is not capable of uh, of performing that kind of of an act of, of affection, of intimacy toward Jesus. Again, any time you draw near and pursue God with all of your heart, there are going to be religious people. There are going to be non-religious people. Those who maybe love God with their words, but as the scripture says, their hearts are far from him. And they're going to try to sabotage your efforts your display of affection, of adoration toward the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it will expose their lack of intimacy. Your love toward the Father oftentimes will expose other people's lack of love. Your passion for God, sometimes what that does is that has the effect of, of, of unveiling other people's lack of passion for the Father. And so what they want to try to do is they want to try to tamp that down. They want to try to contain that. They they want to try to get you to to, to pull back on that a little bit. Your faith in God and his word, it'll always expose someone else's lack of faith in God and his word. And if that doesn't do it, 
what they'll often try to do is they'll try to remind you of your sinful past. They'll try to bring up something from your past to embarrass you, to shame you, to guilt you, to to bring you to condemnation, maybe to kind of make you feel unworthy, you know, uh, unforgiven. And again, like this woman, sometimes you just gotta stay focused and just keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and just let him respond to your accusers. Remember the sisters, Mary and Martha, uh, Luke 10, beginning in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught, but Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. And she came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all of the work? Tell her to get up and come help me. But Jesus said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken from her. So again, this will happen. There are always going to be people who see what you're doing for God. They're going to see your passion, your love, your devotion, uh, your intimacy. And again, you know, Martha was a believer. I mean, I don't think there was probably much difference in in their spiritual walk. And so oftentimes we just got to be aware of that, that sometimes people are going to come and they're going to see what you're doing. And again, sometimes it will expose the lack in them. And rather than deal with that, sometimes they'll just try to put you on a guilt trip. I mean, here's Mary. She's just kind of soaking in. She's just enjoying being in the presence of Jesus. I mean, she's maybe just kind of drinking in uh, his word. She's kind of just basking uh, in this intimacy uh, with her Lord. And again, here kind of comes this wet, cold blanket, Martha, uh, and just kind of raining on her parade. Again, when we choose to make God the greatest, the highest, uh, the, the, the most passionate priority in our lives, when we choose to spend time with God or to express that passion, that affection, that admiration, that intimacy um, in, in very open public ways, um, again, uh, when we choose to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength, people are just going to criticize and complain. And, and again, it's not just unbelievers. I mean, I, I see this stuff happening um, sometimes even in the church. They're gonna sabotage you, especially if, if it kind of invokes in them a jealousy or an envy. If they're feeling threatened or, or they just think that maybe all, their, all the time and attention should be focused on them. So there will be a cost. I mean, I, I know some of you you know, maybe have had experiences where even when you became a Christian, I mean, when you first really kind of started living um, for God, I mean, some of you may have come under fire from family. I mean, some of you, you know, I remember when I became a Christian, I was probably the first in my family uh, to make that uh, d- decision. 
And, and I was pretty open about that. I've shared about that um, in the past. And, and I remember my family saying things you know, to me, you know, oh, you just think you're so much better, you know, or they would see me reading my Bible, you know, and, and make comments that would be kind of, um, again, very derogatory toward what I was doing. Um, and so, again, we, we've all experienced that uh, to various degrees. There's just going to be a cost when you are going to pursue um, that kind of intimacy with God. It may cost you friendships. I mean, some of you maybe have had to walk away from certain types of friendships because they really just weren't conducive for the, for the life that you're trying to live for God. I mean, I know there are guys maybe that, you know, you've been with certain group of guys and, and you maybe, you know, go out uh, in bars and, and drink and, and, you know, you maybe kind of do things. Um, uh, all of a sudden you become a Christian and you just stop that. Um, and again, oftentimes uh, people don't understand that and, and they'll kind of start pressuring you or they'll, they'll kind of start making fun of you. Oh, you Jesus freak. And, and again, they're threatened by that. Um, so that, that's part of that cost. Um, you know, some of you may again, have a spouse that's not a Christian. And they may feel that, you know, you kind of, you know, love Jesus more than you love them. And, and so again, there, there's a cost to this. And, and this is kind of why Jesus warns us in Luke 14, 26. He said, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate. Now again, that word hate, uh, it doesn't mean what it means to us in this culture. That word there, hate, a better translation of that would be, um, you must love less everybody else by comparison. Your father, your mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. So again, it's not hatred, but, but I just want you to love them less than me. And he said, if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. So again, we're called to love God, uh, to be faithful to God, to pursue God above all other relationships. Now Jesus, again, certainly faced a great deal of opposition by others to his relationship with the Father. And it's why he warned in Luke 9, 62, he said, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. So again, Jesus is looking, the Father, again, is looking for total dedication. God's looking for hearts that are just fully and totally sold out to him. And once we start down that pathway uh, of following uh, and having intimate relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, it is crucial that we just keep our eyes fixed and focused on him and not allow others to kind of divert or to distract us or draw us away. So the disapproval of others, again, the pressure to conform back to what you once were can be one of those costs of intimacy with God. Second cost uh, that we're going to talk about uh, tonight is just going to be our possessions. I mean, let's be honest, every one of us in this room probably have at least one device on us um, that can oftentimes just become a huge distraction, can, can kind of just steal our attention. 
Uh, there are things that, that really kind of get in the way uh, of our spending time of pursuing uh, intimacy uh, with God. I know that's true for me. I mean, you know, you just think of all the gadgets, you know, we have at home. I mean, television, um, computers, you know, iPads, phones. I mean, you can just sit here and just you know, list off all of these distractions that we have and oftentimes how those really kind of come in and and interfere and kind of just draw us away from uh, those times with the Father. And we have all these what we call time-saving devices uh, and that's, I think, one of the ways we kind of justify all of that is, well, if I, if I get this and I have that, it'll kind of be a time saver. And what we end up finding is, it, it, rather than time saving, it's really time slaving. Um, you know, and it's not just the, how those things interfere with, you know, our uh, relationship with God, but just think about how oftentimes those things just interfere even in our family life, our personal life. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just like forever um, having to kind of watch myself on that, you know, because there's times where Janie and the kids are all home and, you know, I'm on the computer and not, you know, not doing any, I mean, I can sit here and justify and say, so, yeah, I'm, I'm on, you know, Bible Gateway, I'm, I'm doing a word study or something. I mean, sometimes I am, most of the time I'm not, um, but sometimes I am. So there's things I can do that, that justify that, but then I, I, I've just constantly I'm checking, I shouldn't, I really, I just need to get off this. There'll be time for that later. Janie and the kids are home. I really need to focus attention um, there. And so again, it's not just how it draws us away from God, but how it really can draw us away from relationships um, with other people. Anybody want to take a stab um, at the average time an individual spends uh, watching television in a 24-hour period, whether it's just Television or, or a movie, DVD, VCR. Four and a half hours in a 24-hour period. Time with God, time with our families, time with our spouse. Yeah, it's much, much less. I mean, I think they say basically between the average, you know, husband and wife, there's probably maybe five to ten minutes of meaningful conversation in that period. So again, you, you can just see how this, this, these kinds of distractions um, can not only just take a toll in our relationship with God, but it really can take a toll in our relationship um, with our families. Um, and, and you know, to be honest, watching TV with your spouse, okay, and we, I've justified that, you've justified that, it's really not the same thing as taking time and spending that time in quality conversation with your spouse. I know Janie and I were so guilty of this. Uh, we ended up having, uh, we went, I think, about a month ago uh, down to the National Institute of Marriage, and, you know, they were just, again, just stressing, you know, just this need to just once a week just get away, just the two of you, get away, no television, no kids, no phones, nothing, just the two of you, get away and just FaceTime. And so, you know, we, we ended up coming back feeling really, you know, like, oh, you know, we, we, we do that. And, and, you know, it starts out, you know, every week and then every week kind of spreads out to every couple of weeks and then once a month and then every couple of months. And so we, we kind of came back and that was one of the 
things that we just pulled from that weekend and said, we have got to do, we've got to schedule it in. Uh, so we try to pick Sunday nights, and what's funny about that was when we kind of settled on Sunday night, we have yet to be able to do a Sunday night because we've, we've just have had so many other things going on. So we've been really good about looking at our schedule and saying, okay, you know what, this is going to be happening Sunday night, um, this is happening Friday night, nothing's going on Saturday night, so Saturday night is it. And we lock it in, and there's just, that's it. Um, so we are really having uh, to just discipline ourselves uh, to do this because we know that there is, there is a cost to us relationally when that does not happen. So I, again, no elbowing in here, but uh, some of you uh, may need to, to take that same discipline on. Again, it's just so crucial because we just, we don't recognize. Um, again, sometimes it's just so subtle um, how, that, how that distance just begins um, to grow. Remember the young rich ruler in Luke 18, beginning in verse 18, he said, once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I've obeyed all of these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there's still one thing you haven't done. Sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have true riches in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad for he was very rich. When Jesus saw this, he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, he said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus, again, just kind of gives us a very, very stern warning, again, about how our possessions, our riches, can get in the way of loving, obeying, serving, and following God. And Jesus tells this young rich ruler to sell all that he possessed and then just take that money uh, that he would get from that and then give it to the poor. And again, When he did that, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is really going to the core issue um, of what that man truly worshipped. Jesus is really identifying the core issue uh, of what um, possessed that man. Um, And it wasn't that he possessed his riches, it was that his riches, his possessions, possessed, owned him. And Jesus knew that if this man was ever going to follow him, Uh, with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love him with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, he was going to have to separate himself from those possessions and from those riches. Uh, And this is a, a man who had more security in what he had than in what Jesus could give him. Again, he valued his identity more as a rich man than as a uh, pursuer, a lover of God. Again, anytime we base our our individual identity, our our core being, who we are, our worth, our value uh, as people on anything other than the one who created us, eventually we will just come to this place of just frustration, disappointment, failure, and unfulfillment. Things, possessions, money, other people were never 
meant to ultimately completely satisfy us. I love what Augustine once uh, rightly said. He said, our hearts are never at rest until our hearts are at rest in him. Again, there is nothing wrong with owning those things. I'm not here telling all of you that you need to go out and sell everything you have and, and give it to the poor. There's nothing wrong with having possessions, with having money, as long as those things don't own you and don't control you. The Apostle Paul gives us a proper perspective uh, in Philippians 3, 7. He said, I once thought these things were valuable. And I think the worship team hit on that theme um, tonight. I once thought these things, and you can fill in the blank there with these things, were valuable. He said, but now I consider them worth less because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything is worth less when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. That becoming, again, one with him, that is an act of intimacy. That is the pursuit of intimacy. And Paul was determined not to let anything get in the way of that. Nothing was going to hinder him from that pursuit. Paul saw everything he owned. He saw all of his valuables, his possessions. He saw everything as worth less, the same as garbage, compared to the infinite knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus and being known by him. Because again, we talked about that's the, that's the ultimate of intimacy. It is to be fully known and fully loved. And again, that fully known, uh, again, it, it's the garbage. It's the junk in our lives. It's the, it's the mistakes, the sins, the failures. God sees all of that. We are fully known. You're not hiding a thing from God. As a matter of fact, God sees things you don't even see about yourself. And in that full disclosure of who you are, you are fully loved by God. That's the thing we've got to embrace. Because some of us, we're out there, we're trying to pursue perfection. We're trying to, to, we're trying to uh, get everything taken care of and think that once we reach that place of perfection and, and once we kind of reach this level, uh, uh, somehow then God is going to just lavish his love on us because somehow now we're worthy to be loved. And the reality is, is, is part of what is going to bring you and draw you into that intimacy is God fully knows you, the good, the bad, the ugly. And in that full knowledge, that full disclosure, you are fully loved. That is, that's a hard concept. It's a hard place for us to get to. But once you get to that place, again, intimacy will just naturally flow. Again, I know this isn't, this isn't easy. I mean, it, it's, it's difficult. It, it takes a lot of work. There's cost. There's a lot of work, a lot of effort that, that, that we've got to put into this if we're really going to pursue intimacy with God. It's going to require sacrifices. It's going to require hard choices. 
It's going to require us denying, surrendering, giving up certain things in order to make time to make room for God. In order for us to become filled with all the fullness of the Godhead, again, oftentimes it requires us first just to empty ourselves. For some of us, our schedules are so full, our calendars are, 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 are just jam-packed full. We couldn't squeeze, you know, any more uh, activities uh, into our schedule. But again, sometimes we just have to make those hard choices. We have to choose. There's some things I can do, some things I can't do. Some things I'm going to pursue, some things I can't pursue. And sometimes the only way we will do this is to say no to the world and all that it has and yes to all that he is and offers to give us of himself. So let me just kind of wrap this up tonight. What gets in the way? What are the challenges? What are the obstacles? What are the distractions for you just spending time in his presence? I mean, what is it that that gets in the way uh, of just putting yourself in that place where the love of God can just begin to flow over you? The clearest path to a life of intimacy with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is to remove anything from our lives that would keep us self-satisfied and self-sufficient. So as you go through this week, ask God. Say, God, would you just show me what is it? What are those things? What are those possessions? What are those devices? What are those relationships that are getting in the way of knowing and loving you more deeply, of just listening, hearing your voice, being obedient to that? Just ask God, just begin to show me those things. Now, oftentimes, the reason we don't want to ask that question is we're afraid that God's going to come and completely take it away. That may not be the case. God may just simply say, you know what, rather than four hours in front of the television, I want you just to spend one. So, not get rid of it completely, but let's just decrease it. You know, maybe God's going to put some parameters on, on how you're using your, your phone, how you're using your iPad, how you're using your computer. Don't get rid of it. God's not gonna, maybe God's not going to say, don't get rid of it. God may say, let's just limit the time that you're on it. And you just kind of begin to think through what are some limitations that I could put on that so that it's not the distraction that it has become. So I want to just close with a very familiar prayer affirmation from Psalm 22. I I love this psalm. So I'm going to ask if you're comfortable here tonight. You can just kind of close your eyes. I'm just going to kind of read this kind of slowly, kind of just use it as a prayer, a benediction uh, over you. And I want you just to envision the Father kind of just coming to you, you know, maybe wherever you see yourself. I always kind of see myself in a very nice, beautiful meadow. Sun is shining. There's just a very tall grass, and there's just a great wind blowing across that. And so oftentimes I can kind of just see myself in there, kind of just sitting there all alone, um, nothing, you know, with me, no distractions there. And, And I can just see myself just kind of just sitting there, maybe laying there, kind of just looking up to the sky. So wherever you see yourself, 
and just uh, allowing, inviting him, just asking the Father just again to come to be the shepherd in and over your life. And again, as you're there, you just experience his kindness, his gentleness. You experience his love. And then just ask him to bring you into that place of intimacy. Into that place of rest and where you just begin to just trust him more and more. And just find that place in your mind. Just find that place in your thoughts. And then hear these words. Lord, you are my shepherd. I have all that I need. You let me rest in green meadows. And you lead me beside peaceful streams. You renew my strength. And you guide me along right paths. Bringing honor to your name. Those times even when I walk through the darkest valley the darkest circumstances. I choose not to be afraid for you are there close beside me. Your rod and your staff are there to protect and to bring me comfort. Thank you, Father, that you prepare a bountiful feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor and you value me by anointing my head with oil. My cup, my life, my being overflows with blessings. Surely as the sun will rise tomorrow, your goodness Your unfailing love pursues me all the days of my life. And I choose to live, to dwell in the house, in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Just want to, I know a lot of you here know Jim Lamont.